This morning, we are beginning a new sermon series, The Gospel and Sexuality. Pastor Nate will be teaching via video due to sickness this morning. And the scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would not need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, hey, Redeemer City. Uh, good to be with you today. Wish I could be there with you in person. Uh, but as you probably just heard, I tested positive for COVID this past week. So uh, happy new year to me, 2024, I, could, I suppose you could say. Um, anyway, we are going to start a new series uh today, a five-week series uh, entitled The Gospel and Sexuality. And we're going to be looking over the next five weeks at how this gospel, this good news about Jesus, this news that brings great joy, relates to what we do with our bodies. And before we step into the text, uh, let me give you just a couple conversations that I've had over the years that I think will help kind of fill out and set the table for this series. Uh, the first was um, early on in the life of Redeemer City, uh, many years, several years ago, uh, there was an individual who reached out to me and said, hey, could we sit down and get some time together? And <clears throat> we got together and you could tell he was really nervous. And uh, he began to share just uh, with trepidation, uh, an area in his life related to sexuality that he had struggled with uh, for many years. And you could just, you know, the, the shame that he was feeling was palpable. And after he got done sharing, uh, it was, he looked at me and he was wondering, how are you going to respond? And um, I think I said something like, okay, um, that's it. Now, I said that not to belittle the struggle in his life or the hardships that he had faced, but rather what I wanted to communicate to him in that moment 
was that um, this was a place that you could struggle. Uh, this was a kind of a family where um, you could deal with those things. And my sense is, as we start this series, um, even that title, some of you uh, might be thinking, and the series, it's it might feel like there'll be a lot of condemnation served with a side of shame. But one of my local pastor friends, he he put it well in this way. He he said, Jesus never brought condemnation on people for this issue. And then he said, it didn't mean that he didn't challenge people. Um, he did. But when he did, it was to bring them from darkness into the light. And so let me just say this. Um, no matter where you're coming from today, uh, perspective, view, experience, whatever you bring in here, uh, w- genuinely, I'm just glad you're here. Uh, and <clears throat> what I would say for each one of us today, uh, as we kind of walk through the series, um, I, I'm sure there are going to be things that are going to be challenging. And when that comes, um, just remember this, that is uh, the sting of, of medicine Uh, not a poison. In other words, if there is a challenge that this brings, it is meant to bring wholeness and life. All right, second conversation. Um, Over the years, a fairly common question I get is, hey, what's your church's stance on this particular issue? And, you know, usually they're wanting a, you know, like 30 second quick response and my usual remark is like, well, um, can we get some coffee? Uh, and so I'm sure there are people here today who are wondering, hey, what's your take on this or on this? And um, I would love to take you out for a cup of coffee, uh, you know, once I'm past COVID, right? Uh, but all that being said, um, let me put one thing in front of you for a moment. One brief caveat. And I heard it from another pastor. He said it this way. In a sense, why do you care what we think. And uh, and what he meant by that was this question of sexuality is in many regards a, a secondary issue. I'm not saying it's not important, but there's a first question. There's a more important question. And that first question is really about Jesus and who he says he is. And um, we're not going to go into all of this, but, you know, it's Jesus says, you know, some crazy things like he's God. Um, he says he's bringing this universal reign. Um, the, the, the scriptures testify that he suffers, he dies, he bodily rises from the dead. And so if he is who he says he is, then that changes everything. And if he didn't rise from the dead, uh, if he isn't God, then who cares what I think or what what we think? And I know that's some deep dive, um, but let me just say this. Here's the implications. This is really, I think, I hope this is, a, I hope you hear me on this. Um, we are not in this series here to impose a certain view of morality on you. Rather, I would say this, we are proposing good news about Jesus 
and the life that flows from that. And so um, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at how this good news, how Jesus uh, really uh, shapes this question of what we do with our bodies. All right. All that said, <laughs> that's setting the table for the series. Now let me set the table for where we're going to be the next five weeks in terms of the book. We're going to be in this um, uh, letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And um, <clears throat> Corinth was an urban city. It was rapidly growing in the first century. And here's what it was known for. Um, it was known for being sex-saturated. Uh, there was a, <clears throat> actually a temple, the Temple of Aphrodite's, um, that employed around a thousand temple prostitutes. And so it was a very promiscuous city. In fact, it was so well known for this that the phrase to Corinthianize became a term that meant to live a promiscuous lifestyle. So if you go back with me to around 49 or 50 AD, the Apostle Paul shows up and preaches this gospel, this good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the church is planted. And then here we have this church in the middle of a city like Corinth is <clears throat> trying to work out what it means to work this gospel into every area of their life, including what they do with their bodies. And so I hope you see the relevance, you know, in a culture like ours and a city like ours, <clears throat> Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is written in some ways with a place that's similar. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to look at chapters 5 to 7. And uh, next week, we're going to look at the divine mystery of sexuality. Uh, the week after that, we're going to look at the redemption of sexuality. Uh, the week after that, we're going to look at what it means to glorify God in your marriage. And then the week after that, we're going to look at um, how to glorify God in singleness related to this. So uh, we have a long ways to go. I'm really excited for it. Uh, but today, here's the question before us that this question that this text puts before us. What, what does it mean? What does it mean to be the church in a sex saturated culture? Uh, maybe another way of putting it would just be simply this. What, what should our lives be characterized what should a Christian's life be characterized in a culture like ours? So this passage, um, I'm just going to break it down three ways. We're going to, it shows us three things about this. Um, there's a counterintuitive call. There's two common errors of this call. And then there's a countercultural life uh, in this call. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, we are just grateful today for your word and uh, the good news that it brings. And we just pray now that uh, as we hear it, that we'd receive it and uh, you give us soft hearts. And uh, we, we pray you just speak to us now. Amen. Well, <clears throat> a counterintuitive call. Um, the entire passage, and in fact, you know, this, this passage that was just read, um, there's a lot of stuff happening and it's it's very alarming. But <clears throat> underneath the entire passage is really one thing. It's it's call it's Paul calling the church 
to be holy. Holy. And that's a term, you know, that gets thrown around. Um, it's used, it's often misunderstood, uh, maybe misrepresented. But when the scriptures are applying this term to people, uh, it means to be set apart for God. To be set apart for his purposes. And one of the things I, when I think about this word, many of us, when we hear that word, we think that this term is referred to like, you know, those, as one author put it, who are, who have this great spiritual exertion or have these supremely moral lives. But that's actually not what this term means. It simply means those God has identified as his own. And this is actually what Paul is getting at in the first part of verse 7. This is what it reads. It says this, Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. And this analogy, uh, you know, old leaven is this analogy which makes things contaminated and impure. And the image of a new lump And being unleavened is that of being pure and uncontaminated or holy. And I want you to notice something uh, in verse 7. If you can see it there uh, in your Bible or um, on your smartphone. um, Notice how Paul puts this. I'll read it again. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already are. (sighs) Did you catch how strange that sounds? Cleanse it out, but you already are. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, become what you already are. And Paul is saying this, you are already holy. Be what you are. In other words, Paul is saying, you are already pure and uncontaminated, set apart for God. Now live like it. Now that, I don't know about you, but that's surprising, particularly in a passage like this, where there's some pretty, crazy stuff going on in relationship to this situation. Paul is saying, you're holy. <clears throat> it seems like they've, they've completely missed the boat, right? But that's what Paul is saying. And here's the key to it. The last part of this verse, Paul says this, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In other words, Paul grounds their holiness, their being a new lump in what Christ has done. It's not their moral exertion that makes them holy. It's Christ. And, you know, Paul is pointing them back to the story of Exodus, where God instructed the Israelites to put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And when the 10th plague came, the destroying angel would pass over and the firstborn would not die. And Paul is saying, check this. That image is pointing forward to what Christ has done on the cross. And therefore, if you're in him, you are holy. So in other words, this call of being holy, it's counterintuitive because it's saying you already are, but become what you are. You know, one one simple illustration um, of how this gets worked out. I heard this from another pastor, he put it this way. Some of you who are married, you may remember, you know, those early days of being married. And 
you know, you know, when you stood up at the altar, you made that covenant, um, you know, finished up the ceremony, <clears throat> you were married, right? But presumably, in the weeks that followed, there were probably many times in which you lived like you were single. I mean, I remember a couple times where like, I forgot to tell Amanda that I was going out with some friends and I got home and she was not happy. And of course, if I was single, no big deal, right? But I'm married. And, you know, in other words, there's moments, even when you're, right, when the analogy is that when you're married, uh, you become what you are, you live into that. And Paul is saying, this is the counterintuitive call. You're holy, you're set apart because of what Christ has done. And yet... Become who you already are. So that's the counterintuitive call. But this passage also shows us the two common errors of this call. Look with me for a moment at the first one uh, in verses 1 and 2. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Uh, Paul has heard reports, and what we can gather from this paragraph is that someone in the church, a son, is having ongoing a sexual relationship with what is most likely a stepmom. And here's the kicker. Uh, The church is apparently proud of this. And it's interesting because Paul even says, uh, you know, the Corinthians who are known for their promiscuity, they wouldn't even go for this. And somehow the church at Corinth has had perceived that their freedom in Christ means it didn't matter how they lived in relationship to their body. And so Paul rebukes them. Ought you not rather mourn and remove this person? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But realize this, the opening paragraph, we see this common air of what it means to be the church in our culture, and that is the air of assimilation. Assimilation is to adopt the values, ethics of the culture around, to treat the body in this case and sexuality just like the rest of the culture. It is to take, you know, the God-ordained context for sexual practice outside of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And I'll know we'll, we'll hit the why of that in the coming weeks. I'll just say this. I know in a culture like Madison, it's controversial, but hang with us for a bit um, as we work this out. But that's the air of assimilation. Now, notice Paul's response to this air. In verses 5 and 6, he says this, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I want to end this for a moment because it sounds like Paul is being very judgy. <laughs> and in some regards, he actually is. But uh, we need to understand something here. Um, and any parent knows this, okay? If your kid is running down the driveway, right, without a care in the world, and you see oncoming traffic, the one thing you don't do, you don't sit idly by and say, well, he's got to learn to make his own choices. What do you do? You yell. <laughs> uh, but it, what is it? It's, it's all grounded in love. 
And that's what's happening here. And when Paul says to deliver this man to Satan, it can sound a little bit like, you know, that's kind of a, I don't know, retro way of canceling somebody. But it's important to note that in Paul's next letter, in 2 Corinthians, there's a similar situation that's gone on, but this time the person has turned from their way and returned. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, it's this beautiful passage where he calls the church to welcome this individual back in. In other words, the, one commentator put it this way, the ultimate goal of Paul's word is not, is, is, excuse, me, is, excuse me, is remedial. It's to remedy the situation. It's not judgmental. And also notice one other thing. Um, Paul is not only concerned about the individual who's active in this, he's concerned about the church community itself. He says it only takes a little leaven to work its way through the whole lump. In other words, if the church lets this go, it will affect everyone in the community. And you know, this is so, again, counterintuitive to our individualistic mindset. You know, can't two consenting adults just live their lives? And yet Paul says, more is going on here, that the life of one affects all. In other words, I just say this, Paul's words with the air of assimilation are strong and yet they're loving. And he's calling them back from this air. But the second common error is the other direction. And look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all mean the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Um, you know, somehow they had misunderstood Paul in a previous letter and thought he had meant to separate from everyone. And Paul makes clear that's not what he's saying. And this is really important because sometimes there can be a misunderstanding that to be around others who live differently, who believe differently, who have different values, who are not Christian, somehow being around them contaminates a person. Uh, other times there can be a view that's, that basically simply, you know, Christians can look down on others who live differently and be self-righteous. Um, I'll, I've been in that place before. But Paul simply says, of course, you're going to be around those people of different beliefs and different lives. And so, brothers and sisters, these are, these are the two errors that are so common related to this issue. You know, one pastor put it this way, and I thought this was really helpful. He said, you know, based on your social media or um, <clears throat> what news app you open, there are algorithms that will move you either toward assimilation or towards isolation. And if we do that, we miss our call. All right. So lastly, the countercultural life of this call. Uh, in other words, what, what, is this, what does this look like? Well, let me give you an example. In the, uh, in the second or third century, there was a letter written by an individual named Diognetes. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. Uh, but it was describing how Christians were living in their day. And there's one section of it that says this about Christians. 
it says, here it goes, they have a common table, but not a common bed. Let me say it again. They have a common table, but not a common bed. And that was distinct from the world around them, who had a common bed, but not a common table. Um, Tim Keller puts it this way, that the early church <clears throat> was promiscuous, or excuse me, um, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Keller puts it this way, that the world, the first century world was promiscuous with their bodies and stingy with their wealth, while Christians were stingy with their bodies and promiscuous with their wealth. And that is what sparked what's undeniable that it's been the first, the first sexual revolution. So let me conclude here. Let me just give us uh, two or three ways um, what it might look for us to live this out as a community. And, and I'll just say this couple of these points are just from another good friend um, who wrote these out for his church. But it's, it's a mix of them. But here's, here's a couple things. We would be a community that would live in friendships with one another where common struggles of sexual sin or temptation would be shared. We'd even be a community where at times strong words would need to be spoken out of love, but all out of love. And that over all of it, the beauty of the gospel would bring hope and healing in those situations. Secondly, um, and we'll get into this next few weeks, but <clears throat> on the one sense, we would be a community where marriages would flourish. It's a picture of Jesus' relationship to the church. And the other side of this equation is also, also single Christians could live out their calling without feeling confined or noted to a life of loneliness, but would recognize their full members of Jesus' family. Those two things are coming the last two weeks, so just check with me. And lastly, uh, we'd be a community where non-Christians are loved and are given a place to pursue their questions and doubts without assuming they need to behave like us. I read um, a couple of those this week, and I just thought, there's areas to grow in for us, is there not? So as we continue this series, let's just be confident that the one who's called us, Jesus, is faithful. And let's keep our eye on him as we continue moving forward. Let me pray. Father, we um, just admit our need for you. Um, we hear about this call to be holy, to become what we are. And we recognize um, how easy it is to go in either direction. So we need your help. We pray for this series as we work out these things that you'd give us courage, you'd give us humility, um, you give us honesty, and uh, all this um, for the sake of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.